Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationists Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Stacey Barnett about fringe alerts. Um, you may remember Stacey from our episode on sourcing odor, which came out, gosh, a long time ago at this point, but if you haven't listened to it yet, do go back and listen to our really interesting discussion on how dogs actually need to go from encountering odor and finding it in the environment to finding the target and sourcing down to the source of the odor. Stacy runs Sensibility no- Sensibility Snows Work and shares her life with five dogs. Um, you get to hear a lot more from her and um, all about her and the work that they do in a couple minutes. But first, we're going to start with our weekly suggestion. This week's suggestion is to just get up and go for a little walk. Um, I know it's a little hard this time of year. I'm recording in mid-December. This podcast is going to come out in mid-January. It's kind of cold. Some parts are really, really cold cold in some parts of the country. Um, It can be really dreary. Um, But just go ahead and go take yourself for a walk. So thanks so much for coming on to the podcast again, Stacey. Um, for our listeners who may have forgotten, or um, if you've gotten any updates in your household, do you want to remind us a little bit about who you are and um, all of your lovely labs? <laughs> well, I'm really, really excited to be here and, and, and to talk with you again, uh, Kayla. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, my name is Stacey Barnett. I, I'm the founder of Sensibility's Nose Work, and I'm also an instructor at Fenzie Dog Sports Academy, um, do a lot of seminars, teach seminars, do a lot of webinars, uh, do some judging uh, with AKC uh, and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, I have, I have five dogs. Three of them are Labradors who are my main uh, competition dogs. Uh, the three of them, I've got a four and a half year old uh, Brava. Brava is an elite level dog and she, um, she actually just started trialing in Summit and she got her first Summit title. Um, so I'm super, super stoked about that. Um, and she's, she's just, we're working on finishing her elite champion right now. Um, mm-hmm. her half sister powder is my two and a half year old lab who, um, you have to watch out what you name them powder short for gunpowder. She's a little bit of a nut. Um, she is trialing at the elite level and it's absolutely super. And then my newest one is she's about 16 months old prize prize is a cousins to the, 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 the other two. And she just got her NW2 title. So she's, um, she's, she's starting and she's, she's going to be a lot of fun because she's a lot, she's a little <laughs> bit more thoughtful than powder. Um, you know, the powder is kind of more the, the do than think kind of dog, but um, <laughs> sure. you, know, you know, it does are like incredible dog, absolutely incredible dog. Um, but prize prize is actually, she's thoughtful and she's a major air center. And I am so excited uh, to see, uh, to see where she goes. So um, all three, honestly, I'm, I'm blessed with my girls and um not to say that we don't ever have our our issues with uh you know something pop up or in training and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing but um i'm really blessed with all three of them so yeah and then you've got you've got a mini american shepherd and a poodle as well right i do i do i have a 10 year old mini aussie who um Mm -hmm. trials when he feels emotionally okay to trial Mm -hmm. um because he is very uh very environmentally sensitive he's very you know, emotionally sensitive. So it just depends on where he is. And I have a 14 year old standard poodle who's retired. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just, yeah, but uh, yeah, I've got, I've got the two boys and, and they put up with a lot in the house as, as you can imagine with three young field labs. So um, yeah. it's not just me that puts up with a lot of, you know, the boys are really, yeah. 
really quite good about it. Um, and I, uh, <laughs> I'm very happy for that. Yeah, I can imagine. I know my my older border collie in particular can get a little stressed out being around some of our our field hunting sorts of dogs in particular spaniels really seem to drive him up the wall i think it's that kind of like frenetic energy you put him in a blender you know yeah (laughs) yeah so yeah i'm curious how does why just kind of like deal with them or like do you have to do more management as far as getting him to just be able to go to his quiet space I, I have to do a little of a, a little of a little management because he will tell me when they break the rules, which is mm-hmm. a lot, you know, because field labs break a lot of rules uh, according to little herding breeds. Yeah. So you know, herding breeds are all about rules, 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 and the labs are like, ah, who cares about rules, you know? And yeah. <laughs> it can be a little. I have to like, nope, nope, you can't bark at them. It's not a good idea. And then I can, I'm like, let let me diffuse it, you know? So yeah. They're, mm-hmm. He, he gets a little offended sometimes by their yeah. behavior. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, <laughs> so we can we started talking about this episode. Gosh. So we're recording in like mid December. We started talking about this. It must've been August, if not earlier. I think so. Because, yeah. Yes. And, and, you know, I was in the midst of my field season. You were in the midst of a bunch of traveling and seminars, I believe. So, you know, we finally got it on the calendar. We're finally doing it. But what prompted this episode was talking, um, one of the things I was seeing with Niffler in the field. So we were working on wind farms. We're trying to find dead bats. And I was noticing Niffler doing this thing where he would be out and he would be ranging really nicely and quartering and doing his beautiful searching. And then he would encounter odor and he would lie down right away. Yep. Um, and I, and then as I approached him, he would do this very funny thing. It kind of reminds me of, have you ever played a video game where you have like a, like a spirit animal or like a, a you know, some sort of spirit that you're kind of like following and they guide you through the video game? No. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I don't play a lot of video games. I don't either. Um, but it, it's um, or if have you seen Brave? Um, they have like the Will of the Wisp that guides um, what's her name into the woods. Oh um, yeah, this is this is embarrassing. yeah. That's okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure all your metaphors are working really, really great. Um, <laughs> I, uh, hopefully, one person in the audience gets it, and then it's worth it. But anyway, what he was doing is I would get to within 10 or 15 feet of him and he would pop up and he would run closer to run up the scent cone a little bit, I presume. And then he would lie down again and then I would get closer and he would get up. And eventually he generally would get to the bat uh, and actually be alerting at the bat. But he wasn't sourcing that odor appropriately um, (laughs) in my assessment early on. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about kind of what that is, where it comes from, and what we can do about it. So why don't we start out with kind of what that is. I was calling it fringing. I think that's what it is. Um, Tell us a little bit. I would definitely call that fringing. Um, I I consider fringing when the dog is in odor, and they um, indicate um, away from the the acceptable, like what would we consider acceptably within that, um, you know, where where they should be alerting. And if we think about it... um, alerting that the, the final response begins where sourcing ends. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of the, the, the whole in a, in a, in a nutshell, right. That's really what it is when sourcing ends, the final response begins. So when we have that balance off a little bit, 
Um, and the, the sourcing ends prematurely. Mm -hmm. The final response starts prematurely. We get the fringe response. So, and I think kind of what you're talking about is almost like then you start to get into this feedback cycle where the handler needs to be involved. And when the handler starts to get involved and they start to create this cycle, it's very hard to get out of that because now the dog has started to rely on the handler and it, it, and that becomes something where you're almost inserting that into the behavior chain, right? Which um, becomes its own process. And and once that's inserted in the behavior chain, it's really hard to back that out of it. So I think that's kind of what you were encountering there. And and really, if you go back to when sourcing stops, the final response begins and, 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 and think about that balance and, and what you can do to affect that balance, I think that is really what we what we would want to do in order to to fix that, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, why don't we, I guess I would love to start with, you know, what, is this a tendency that some dogs seem to have out of the box? Is this a training thing where you're doing too much of a specific sort of exercise? or too little of something else. What, um, in your experience, have you, has you kind of seen as some contributing factors to causing this? Yeah. And it's actually, it's something that I was just talking about recently, um, which is, and it goes back to balance, right? So, uh, we want the dog to be perfectly in balance if we can. And what I mean by that is that when we look at the general behavior chain of searching, right, we have the hunting, we have the finding, and then we have the alerting. Mm-hmm. So when we are out of balance with that, one of the potential results is that that uh, that balance between sourcing and alerting, right, where that happens, the timing of that starts to get a little out of whack. So, for instance, mm-hmm. if we and, and, and a lot of uh, the challenges that we can see in training uh, are really due to that imbalance between hunting, finding, and alerting. Mm-hmm. So, for instance. If we over if we overemphasize the hunting and we underemphasize the finding and the alerting, we're going to get a dog that is very happy to hunt, very happy to look for stuff. May actually have a response to odor, but then gets so excited and keeps going. Right? Sure, I've seen that. As an example, right? Uh, We see that a lot. We see that with. um, I'm sure you probably see that on the conservation side. We definitely Mm -hmm. see that on the on the sports side, um, especially when people are working multiple hides. We'll work with a lot of multiple hides, which I'm guessing you probably you know have have multiple finds. Yeah, yeah, generally. So you know the dog gets so excited, like woohoo, odor, and then like hey, maybe there's something else. So, or you could get um, out of balance in terms of overemphasizing the alert. We see this a lot also with nose work dogs, where if the if the alert is so emphasized, then the, the dog actually needs help with the hunting part of it. And you start to see the handler having to interject too much into the search. Uh, we see a lot of, uh, you know, where the, the dog basically starts to look to the handler and says, where do you want me to search? You know, so you start to see mm-hmm. a little bit of that. Now, I think that's probably less of a concern with a dog specifically bred for a lot of hunting, and they have kind of that that mm-hmm. built in, which um, you know a lot of the sporting dogs do. Uh, but if you but you still need to have that balance because if we emphasize the alert without really pairing that with the sourcing aspect of it, 
then the dog may start to um, get into odor and start to throw that very quickly. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we're like, yeah. oh, you know, you know, we're really emphasizing that alert, really emphasizing the alert, uh, the dog can just get out of balance. It's not that the dog doesn't understand. It's just that the dog's out of balance. So then you yeah. have to kind of rebalance that, right? Um, by maybe potentially um, backing off on your criteria a little bit with the alert and increasing your criteria on the sourcing and then adding the, the alert back in. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it's interesting to kind of think back and try to pinpoint it's exactly what may have been going on. And I apologize for all the throat clearing to all our listeners. I've, I'm fighting off a little bit of a cold. Um, uh trying to think back to what was what was happening around that time and you know the, the, one of the interesting things that happens for us in this field is you tend to train a lot in the off season so right now as i said december we're we're doing a fair bit of training right now um although we're actually also doing a lot of resting for the dogs right now and then once we're actually in the field you know niffler and i would be in the field for six or eight hours a day four days a week so we weren't doing much training on top of anything right so it's interesting to think about what conditions may have been existing in the field or maybe i'm sure there's still stuff that i was doing in my behavior that kind of caused this this problem to crop up over the course of about a month of the field season and then over the second month of the field season it got a lot better right um and I don't know, because it wasn't like an intentional training thing that I could kind of look back on my training logs and be like, oh, gosh, yeah, I was doing a lot of alert work or whatever. Um, yeah. It's a little harder for me to say exactly what may have caused it with Niffler. But I love I love the breakdown of the hunting and the finding and the alerting um, to kind of think about, you know, here for fringing. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the one of the root problems may be that you're overemphasizing that alert. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that could be the, like the training side of it, but from your side, I mean, you're doing a lot of, you know, you're out and, and you're doing the, the application. Mm-hmm. And if, if we kind of do like a, I mean, cause again, I, you know, I, I'm, I live in a different world. Right. But, but I yeah. think we draw a lot of parallels. And mm-hmm. I think if, for, for instance, if, you know, you didn't have time to, if you were a sport handler and you didn't have time to train very much, but you trialed a lot. Right. Yes. And you go out and you're going to trial after trial after trial, and you're not really getting that training in, you're going to start to see um, a little shifting of how your dog performs. And I, I think it's just because you're under different stressors, right? And you're not able to control a lot of the setups, a lot of the situations. Yeah. You're not controlling what creates that balanced dog. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're kind of at the whim of, you know, like in our, from our cases, like the judges or the certifying officials, or mm-hmm. even the pressure that you feel, um, you can be coming in, um, you know, with, with a lot of pressure from maybe some, you know, home, home environment pressure on yourself. You got a lot of, you know, your head's not on straight. All of that will affect what your dog, how your dog performs. And if you don't have that chance to kind of unravel that, and kind of rewind and go back and, and train in between from a trialing perspective, you know, from the sports side, um, it's very hard to keep that dog in balance over the period of many trials. And, and that's probably similar, my guess is, similar to kind of what you were going through, where it's it's hard to... to um, you know, to, to change the course of, you know, of, of how the dog's working if you're in the middle of a lot of work, if that makes sense. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. I would say so. Um, and I know I can think of the two exercises that I kind of worked on to try and pull Niffler out of this. Um, I was kind of coming at it from two different levels. So one would be, I could kind of tell in his body language when he was going from hunting to alerting with very, yeah. very little sourcing. Yes. Um, because he wasn't actually going up wind. And we're working on a wind farm. We're working with dead bats. So it's a nice big odor cone in most cases. It's you know, it, There's a lot of scent available. So generally, and it's windy. Yeah. So you should be able to see the dog moving up an odor cone to some degree. Yeah. And then often some amount of that nose dropping and snuffling a little bit before actually finally alerting. That's, you know, the ideal of what um, I would generally see in that project. And that's not necessarily true for all conservation dog work, but because we're working in grasslands, nice and open, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's what we were seeing. So I could kind of see the times where he was, he was going straight from hunting to alerting. And what I was doing there was actually kind of turning away from him, continuing mm -hmm. to move yeah. um, and not actually leaning into that alert at all. And I was still trying to keep track of it and yeah. where it was in case he didn't then go and do, you know, the right thing, quote unquote, because I obviously wanted to be able to go and collect that bat. Um, that's what we're being paid to do. Um, right. <laughs> so we were doing a lot of that in the field and that seemed to help a lot. And then outside of the field, I was, I spent a little bit of time really working on, um, a little bit more of a, I taught him a show me cue that was kind of a specific, like, let's pinpoint it, get your nose right on it sort of thing. And those came at really at it from really different sides. And I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on, I can see some big drawbacks to using that show me cue because yes. that's continuing to emphasize that alert. Yes. Um, but what, um, what your thoughts on? Yeah. yeah, it's a bandaid. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the show me, I actually see that a lot in, uh, on, the, on the sports side. And usually it means uh, that basically what the, the handler is saying is, I don't trust you, work harder. And um, mm -hmm. and, and that that has some intrinsic issues. Um, yeah. You start thinking long term, um, you know, because it, it can get you into a cycle because it also becomes a prompted alert. Because let's say um, your dog is working something else that is not your target odor, and mm -hmm. you and you interpret that as your target odor, and you start to say "show me," yeah, then then you can have some real problems because that can re can result in a final response. So that's that's a that's where some of that is is kind of not necessarily productive in my. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's, it's, uh, and again, it is a band aid. If, if you, if you know, like a, on it from a short term, you know, if you're, if yeah. you're, you're working a deployment, you got, you've got a, you know, or whatever, you, you know, I don't know. Yeah. We needed a solution that was going to help a little tomorrow. Exactly. Exactly. That, that is, you know, I've had a situation where, um, Brava will sometimes get into pooling odor and I could see where she just throws the final response. And I tell her, you know, to kind of, I encourage her to get back in there and resource it. Um, just, just because I can see that she's been a little sloppy in her final responses. That is also a bandaid. Um, and it's, we just want to make sure that it doesn't become part of the permanent repertoire. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but if, I mean, if you have to do that, do it in the moment, you know, if you've, if, you know, Hey, you know, Hey, you got to find the bat. Right. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. one of the things that I also, um, I, both of my dogs at this point now have a show me and I've used it for barley. Historically, it's mostly been when he's alerting on something that I just can't see. Right. Right. 
and I need him to really kind of like shove it with his nose again right. for me. Right. Um, and that towards the end of this field season, that's how I was using it for Niffler. Cause occasionally we would find like a little teeny tiny bone fragment, or there were a couple times where he alerted to like a patch of bare ground. And when I picked it up and kind of sifted it through my hands, I was uh, able to find like a little clump of fur Wow. and maybe, maybe a bit of wing leather or something. Wow. So, like, ultimately, being able to have that show me was helpful yes. anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's like, I trust you. I know you're, uh, you know, I believe you that you're there. Exactly. But, like, it's not a whole bat carcass exactly. that I'm going to be able to see relatively easily. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and then that kind of, like, ignoring him or sometimes I would kind of, like, look at him and kind of I would, like, lower my voice and lower my my body language in general and just kind of be like, nope, let's keep going or, you know, yeah. nope, search. I can't remember exactly what terminology I used for him at the time. Um, and generally then he would kind of get up and figure out how yeah. to go, like, insist on that odor if I was leaving him. Is yeah. that, um, you know, again, in the moment, one of the things that you would suggest? Or what are your your top-line thoughts? It, in the moment, it would work. Um, now, it sounds like your dog's final response is a down. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that that's that's actually as, as much, I mean, there, that's a super final response, especially for, for what you're, you're working with. Um, I have noticed that there, um, that it, when you see an obedience behavior with a final response, as the final response, it can be more likely that this type of stuff happens. It's, mm -hmm. you know, like a sit or a down. Um, I've seen this a lot with the, uh, you know, sport dogs where having a, an obedience behavior, uh, makes it easier for the dog to throw the final response. Um, then, you know, for that, and then the other thing that, that kind of can cause that I think is the way the dog thinks. Some dogs are just rapid thinkers. Um, and they just yeah. process information. They're like, zoom, here's the final response, right? <laughs> yeah. Versus some dogs that are a little bit more thoughtful. So like, for instance, Brava is a very, very rapid thinker. She draws conclusions very rapidly and, um, and, and that can be, uh, that, that can also contribute to that. So, I think in the moment, you know, having a little bit of like, Hey, you got to keep working. I think is, is really, especially if you have a dog that makes those snap decisions, um, which a lot of dogs do, you know, I think that is probably what you kind of need to do in that situation. And then you have to kind of mm -hmm. go back later and say, okay, well now it's training time, right? How can I try to take that out of my, um, uh, my behavior chain so that I don't, so that I'm not required to keep telling my dog, keep going, keep going. Right. right. Cause that's kind yeah. of like a keep going cue. Like, you know, keep going, you can do it. Keep going, keep going. You don't mm -hmm. want to have to do that. So in that case, you know, then you might be looking at how do you vary your odor strength? How do you vary your wind? How do you, you know, really setting it up so that the dog, um, can drive to source. Cause I think sometimes, um, you know, we can get into this type of situation when we're working a similar odor strength or, or even from your case, if you were practicing a lot with some like similar odor, I'm not saying that you are, this is just mm -hmm. hypothetical, right? Uh, practicing with a similar odor strength. And then if the dog encounters, you know, lighter odor, which could be like a bone or a piece of wing leather or whatever, that they may start to draw a conclusion about the odor concentration and start to hit, you know, start to throw their fun response at different yeah. points which could be yeah. part of what you're seeing when you're working with very small concentrations of odor. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that we could see would be a really fresh bat 
Yep. Or maybe a bat that had died a day and a half ago, so it was really ripe. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Very refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing that we would see occasionally is as the bats are migrating, um, they're moving in groups. Right. And occasionally, this was always really unfortunate, but you would get three, four, five bats all oh. under the same turbine that had all been hit while yeah. moving together. Um, yeah. So there, I would imagine we're getting some really big, weird odor cones. And a lot of times then they're actually, they're kind of clustered. You're not getting them evenly spread throughout the Oh, the wow. Yeah. 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 So you probably yeah. have a pretty wide scent cone, you know? Yeah, I would imagine so. And a lot of overlapping yeah. scent cones too, right. kind of depending on where we're coming from. Um, yeah. And, you know, and the, the other thing that, you know, just to give uh, Niffler his credit, like he was nine, 10, 11 months old throughout all of this. So wow. he just really. Good boy. Yeah, yeah, he's he's really, really awesome. I'm really, really proud of him. Um, you know, so it's like, yeah, we were dealing with this, but also, yeah, like, yeah. of course we were. Of course yeah, we had some stuff exactly. come up. Um, exactly. You know, so, um, yeah, he's still really early in his career. Yeah. So, and I, it's funny, because uh, the last episode that you and I did together was on sourcing. Right. And it seems like a lot of what you're saying is that, when you've got the time and the space to go back to, to this, what you're then go going to do is go back to the drawing board with more sourcing games. Is that yep. accurate? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause that, that's really, that's really where that, where you shift that balance. Right. Um, and it sounds like he's also a very enthusiastic dog. So, yes. which honestly could be part of, I hate to say it's part of the issue, right? Yeah. Is, is he's so enthusiastic and he wants to do his job you know, and he gets so excited that, that you get the final response. It's like, woohoo, I found it, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, totally. and you're, right. And you're dealing with an adolescent brain on top of it. So oh my God, an adolescent intact boy brain. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I can't, yeah. Wow. It's, it, he's, and he's, he, and he's doing great, obviously. So yeah, no, he's, yeah. he's a really cool guy. <laughs> yeah. That is so cool. That is so cool that he can do that at that age. So it's just, you know, that, then we have to kind of say, all right, well, now we're dealing with a nine or 10 month old puppy and, mm -hmm. you know, okay. So I, I think, we, I, th I think it also comes down to, we, we have to realize that dogs are dogs and, um, and what they're emotional and they're, and they're, 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 they're thinking animals and sometimes they're going to make mistakes. Um, of course. And, and yeah. it's just like, how do we, it's more, how do we respond to that? Right. And, um, you know, in that situation, it's like, oh, hey, you know, keep going. You're okay. You're you're just not experienced enough to figure this out yet. You know, it, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is so cool that he can do that at that age. That's really awesome. Yeah, he's he's yeah. a he's a really cool little guy. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the other things that I saw, you know, when we were talking about the the choice of the down as an alert, one of the things I saw, especially again, kind of getting into August this summer, um, we were having a lot of like. 90 degree days, 100 degree days. Oh, and yeah. occasionally I would see him, um, you know, he would flop down and lie down in like the shade of the turbine. Yep. Yep. Which is, you know, entirely reasonable. Of course he deserves <laughs> to take a break. Um, luckily our searches were like maybe 20 minutes or so. So he would get 20 minutes of searching with a cool coat on and then up to an hour or so off before our next, yeah. our next search. Um, but there were definitely also times where it was like, oh yeah. And this is where handler education comes in. And yeah. I need to know the difference between like a flopping, I'm hot alert. Right. Well, not, not alert. Right, right, right. Down. Behavior. Yeah. 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 
and uh, a like, oh, no, 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 I think I've got something here. And because even if he's still fringing, yeah, I'm going to re- respond differently to a like, I'm hot down versus a fringing down versus a really, a really nice, yeah. like, okay, I think he actually sourced that beautifully. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the fact yeah. that he can do even 20 minutes in that, that heat, that's incredible. I mean, that's a long time to work. Yeah. That is a really yeah. long time to work, especially in the heat, you know, and, and that's, that is uh, those, that's a time in excess of what we see in the sport world. Like there's, yeah. just, you know, um, they, they just don't have to work that, you know, for that long. I mean, it's intense period, yeah. but it's, it's intense and in, in shorter spurts. Um, yeah. It, it is one of the things that I think is maybe most challenging, especially for people who kind of transition from more of the sport world up to um, the conservation dog world. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure this is similar for a lot of other working dog realms, but yeah, the, the search times do tend to be really long. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know Barley has done a couple, my older dog, um, when we were doing black footed ferret work, we had some searches that were probably five hours. Wow. Yeah. You know, and it's much more like wilderness search and rescue style. Like you right. know, we were covering like 300 acres. And of course we're taking breaks. Right. And we're stopping right. and doing it. But you know, it, even if he's taking like a 10 minute nap in the shade and then yeah. starting again, it's not, it's not the same thing. As, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of brain power, you know, uh, you know, yeah. when they're working that and, and, dealing with uh competing stimuli and staying motivated and mm-hmm. you know that's i i think that that well it, it just goes to show why why you need a high drive dog for that kind of thing so <laughs> yeah 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 exactly and uh, and just again so much like understanding on the handler end of things of being able to recognize what the dog needs um and yeah, of course, if they've been if they've been hunting and sort you know working to try to find odor for eighteen minutes, and then they find something, of course, they're going to get excited. Finally, alert, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so I guess it comes down to then how do you build that into your training? So, I mean, if you, if you think you know, like how do you, how do you build a, how do you do your setups so that they can kind of you can kind of replicate that. Yeah. So I know one of the things that I was working on a lot with Niffler um, was because uh, we we generally what we were doing is working four days a week. So I had three days a week where I could do a little bit of training with him or maybe in the evenings after he got like a little four hour, like a four hour nap and we could do it. Right, 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 right. Um, but I know I was going back and doing a lot of much smaller, shorter puzzles. Um where I knew that he really was going to be able to source. And then one of the other things that I found a little bit helpful for him, and this is potentially more helpful for Barley than it is for Niffler, at least so far in what I've seen, but actually setting up more complicated odor puzzles. Yep. Um, kind of seemed, seems to pique both of their interests and kind of get them back into that, that sourcing game, that sourcing yes. mindset. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've got that story where you dropped your iPad and right. like almost how like working for it. And for anyone who doesn't know, just go back and listening to listen to the sourcing episode again, <laughs> but working harder to reach something yes. seems to somehow Im- increase your motivation. I'd love to talk to a neuroscientist about that at some point, <laughs> like why, but <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's, um, I think part of it also is also, um, you know, you're, you're trying to, increase the challenge level for the dog's um, skill level, right? So if the dog's skill level Mm -hmm. is a little higher, you want to increase the challenge level and it kind of gets them into kind of that flow state. So Mm -hmm. I've been doing a lot of like, uh, you know, reading about that because there's such an, um, 
a correlation between like the flow state and getting our dogs highly engaged in what they're doing. And, you know, if we do stuff that's too easy for too long, the dog gets bored and then they start to get a little sloppy. And, but if we can give them something that's kind of meaty that they can kind of put their teeth into yeah, a challenge that they, that really engages them, right. Really gets them excited. Things that are maybe a little bit more different than what they usually see. Yeah. You know, we really see a, an increase in the dog's engagement in the search. And when you get an increase in the engagement, you get an increase in things like sourcing. So I've seen a huge amount of that. Like, so for instance, if your dog is just kind of like lackluster, if you do something just even a little bit differently, or you give them something a little bit harder, Mm -hmm. you're going to start to see that they put in a little extra effort and they start to actually, they they enjoy it more. I think it's really, it comes down to, Hey, this is, this is, this is cool and different and this is hard and and I'm enjoying it. And and then you get better. So. Well, and I wonder to what degree that may have been just kind of another contributing factor for Niffler. Because again, this wasn't a problem super early in our field season. Um, it kind of cropped up about halfway through. And, you know, at that point, again, so what the, it's a, a wind turbine, and then we we're doing a 100 meter by 100 meter square under the turbine. Okay. okay. And it's just grassland. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's it. You know, we did, there, it was open rangeland, so there were cattle sometimes moving through um, okay. and some distractors, but there's really very little 3D complexity. Right. You know, some areas were more heavily grazed than others or had like slightly different, like we had some verbena, which yeah. is like kind of a hip height grass. Yeah. Um, or I guess it's not a grass, it's some sort of herby something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it, smells, it, smells good. it smells good. It does. It's very pretty. It's purple. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. But, Really, I mean, very, very monotonous work yeah. for the dogs. Um, and there's no, nothing's ever going to be elevated. Nothing's ever going to be, yeah. there's never going to be a corner. There's very little, even where, especially where we were working, actually. And this isn't universally true for all wind farms, but it was incredibly flat. There was very little, like, topography that they were going to get to play with, like, the wind currents on. Yeah. You're in Nebraska, so it's pretty much always the wind is blowing oh, from the west to the east. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not going to get the swirling. You're not going to get the... No. Yeah, you're, you're not even going to get a lot of variation in terms of, uh, like, thermals or anything because you've got... I mean, if, if you've got steady wind, that's going to be the primary driver of your airflow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I wonder, and that wasn't actually something I had really fully considered before this conversation was just how much of this could have actually been boredom Yeah, of him just being like, yeah, I, I ran into the odor. It's going to be 10 meters up that way. Exactly. You go find it. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. You know, I see this a lot, especially with, um, really intelligent dogs, honestly. Yeah. Um, it, like if I look at, look at my dogs, the one who's most likely to fringe is Brava and she's probably the smartest dog I've ever, ever worked with. Uh-huh. And she's, and she has a final response. Her final response is actually a look back. Like she, she hits it and then she looks back at me and says, you know, it's here. And that, mm-hmm. that's kind of her, she developed it herself and it's fine. But sometimes if she's bored, she just goes, oh, it's over there, you know? And it's just very, she's uh-huh. very dramatic about it because <laughs> I, would, I would say like, she's like this 13 year old girl stuffed in a little dog's body. Cause she's, she's yeah. very dramatic. She's very, you know, it's, it's drama, drama, drama. Um, and she's just, she'll, but she'll get bored really easily. And she's like, I've done this stuff like before. This is really boring. It's over yeah. there. You know, she just really is just, she doesn't put a lot of, um, uh, a, a lot of motivation into it unless it's like a new place. She loves searching new places. She yeah. loves 
challenging things. She loves things that really kind of push her, things that are new and different. And all of these, and if I do that, I get better performance out of her. But if it's kind of the same old, same old, she starts getting completely disengaged. And just is like, you know, I've done this before. Yeah. I don't want to do this again, you know? And and that's kind of her, you know, her, her thing. She wants, she wants it to be tough, you know? But I, I think, I think part of it is she's a fast thinker. The other part of it is she's just too smart, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know um, Megan Parker, who's one of the founders of Working Dogs for Conservation and one of my mentors in the field um, has said before that she's like, I really prefer working dumb dogs. <laughs> yes, I could see why. I yeah. could see why. You know, they just keep working like, oh, okay, here it is. You know, just keep here going. Go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and I love, I love thinking about, especially, you know, knowing that your girls are related and my, yeah. my guys are, they're not technically related. I think on their embarks somewhere they're yes. uh, like way, 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 way back. There might be like a little bit of relation, but anyway, they're both border collies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And just how different they are. Like Barley, I don't think I've ever seen him do anything I would call anywhere near a fringe alert. Yeah. He'll yeah. just get complete. Like if he gets and Barley is much more, he's beyond high drive. He's full on high, like obsessed yeah. with his um, reinforcers. So his problems tend to come from just long searches where he's just like, I just want the freaking ball. Yeah. And he'll just yeah. start alerting to kind of okay. random things. Yes. Um, yes. And he just, yes. and he starts getting into this kind of like frantic obedience mode where he's like, right. all I want is the ball. What do I have to do to get you to give me the ball? And Niffler, yeah, is much more, and part of it as well, I would assume, is Barley and I, um, before getting into set work, had also done some agility. He was someone's pet for three and a half years before oh, I got him. So he has a he has an operant side to him too. So he's he got goes, a, and, and Niffler. Yeah. I, honest to God, at like, f- I mean, he's like fourteen months old now. I he doesn't know how to shake. Um, he barely knows the difference between <laughs> sitting down, like. All we've ever done is scent work, and he's he's a well behaved guy, so I feel it works. Attacked. I feel attacked. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes people, I'll like I'll like have him with with friends or whatever, and Barley yeah. knows so many dumb tricks. You know, yeah. he he knows the difference between sit pretty and T Rex, and T Rex is like standing on his hind legs and staring at you like a little a little velociraptor. Um, <laughs> and Niffler is just like boop boop boop. All he does is find bats. Like I don't know, <laughs> right. Right. Um, which is which is. Great. And I think especially, uh, and this is now kind of getting into like that ethology side of things that I love nerding out about is like, I think especially for me with a border collie, I would much rather really focus on that, like that hunting, that sourcing, that seeking side of things with a border collie. And like, I can always layer in that operant side later versus I think if I had a cocker. Right. Or a walker or a springer or a sprocker, <laughs> all of, the, all of those, <laughs> those little breeds that I'm thinking about maybe yeah. for my next dog, yeah. I probably would do a lot more of that kind of like obedience and working with them a little bit earlier on to try to get them to at least include me in the picture more often. Right, because they're just a little bit more naturally independent. So yeah, yeah. And yeah. it is it, so interesting when you start thinking about the different dog breeds and how they you know, and that, and how do you get your dog to that balance? Like it goes back to the, the balance of the hunting, yeah, the, the uh-huh. learning, right. And depending on the dog's breed and the dog's predilections, right. They're going to come at that balance differently. So, you know, the level of that natural independence is going to be a big part 
of how they're going to fall out into their natural balance and how you kind of get them into something a little bit more efficient or effective. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see that. I, I see that with my own dogs. I see that with students, dogs, and it's just, and that really does affect how you have to approach their training. It's, it's really fascinating, honestly. Hey everyone, just dropping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. Um, so we still have all those same levels that we've talked about in the past. We've got the $3 a month doggy detector where you ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but you also get to join our monthly training video calls, which are great if you're considering getting into the field of conservation dog training or are already in it and want to take you and your dog to the next level. Um, we will record the calls and then we publish the video for patrons to view and ask questions about. So everyone in all time zone gets, gets to participate fully. At the $10 level, you get all of that plus the ability to ask questions, give feedback, and submit videos of you and your dog training for those calls. Um, and we also, we don't care about your target owner. So if you're working on competitive scent work or explosives or narcotics or anything like that, come on and join. It's a ton of fun. Finally, canine conservationists at the highest level um, for $25 a month get a private 30-minute call with me each month, um, which is cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com. Um, so I also have a couple new updates. As of October this year, we are also going to be doing a monthly uh, learning club call. So aside from those video calls where every all of the patrons get to uh, go through dog training specific videos in these learning club calls, we will all watch the same webinar, read the science, same scientific paper, or otherwise kind of participate in the same new learning opportunity and then get together once a month on video chat to talk about it. So that's going to be a really great way to expand your knowledge, not just in the scent training world and the dog handling world, but also learning more about ecology, conservation, odor dynamics, all those great things. It's real nerdy. It's awesome. So I also added some exciting new merch. So for our patrons, now once every quarter, you will get an exclusive um, bit of canine conservationist swag if you join at the highest level. So there's a mini print of Niffler that's just kind of a cute little postcard of Niffler. Um, you get a canine conservationist mug after three months. And then there are a couple different stickers. And all of that just is kind of included in the cost of your Patreon. And again, all of that helps support this podcast. This podcast would not be possible without our members over on Patreon. So I do hope you go ahead and join us over on Patreon. Again, for as little as three bucks a month, you get all sorts of fun stuff. At those higher levels, you do get more one-on-one -on -one attention and you get swag. But even if you've got three bucks a month, uh, we really appreciate it and would be thrilled to have you around. Now let's get back to the show. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit. We did a really cool episode with Dr. Simone Gadbois about signal detection theory. And that I'm I'm sure I'm butchering it, but you know, it was it was a great episode. It was a lot about the idea of how how some dogs are more likely to make false um positives versus false negatives. So they're more likely to make errors of omission versus commission. And he talked a lot about how important it is to know which side your dog is likely to fall on yeah. as you're moving forward with that. Um, and it seems like we've got a similar problem with this hunting versus sourcing versus alerting. Like right. you kind of want to know where on, on both of those matrices your dog falls so that you can, and of course with training, we're, we're always adjusting that. So it's not like your dog is always a seven out of, right. 10, you know, like, right, it, right, but, right. but that again is where so much of, um, of the training needs to come in and really thinking intelligently about yes. where your dog likely falls. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the whole reason why you can't just do cookie cutter training, you really have to know your mm -hmm. dog and you really have to, 
you have to kind of have a, have a guiding light. Like this is the balance I want to try to achieve between these things. And how do I get my dog and it's sculpting, right? When you creating the, 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 when you're developing the dog to work in any kind of a scenting situation, it's, it's almost like you're sculpting the dog, right? You're you're just, it's a little off of this, a little off the left, a little off the right, you know, and you're just kind kind of trying to, to, guide them through the hide placement and setups and everything to try to get to what you're trying to, you know, yeah. create. And, and every dog is going to come at it differently. And even though like my girls are so closely related, uh, you know, I get them all from the same breeder. Cause I, I love the breeder. I love her dogs. Yeah. Um, Brava and powder are half sisters. They have the same mother. Um, but they're so different, which is really kind of funny and how they work and everything. Prize is cu- probably a cousin, you know, I mean, she's not real, real tight as she's not as tightly related as the other two, but you know, you start to see their, their tendencies are just so different and they and how they think. And it's not, it has nothing to do with, you know, I think sometimes we try to bucket it into, well, this dog is drive, this dog doesn't. And it's not as clear as all that. It's, it's, it's how they process information. It's what they, uh, you know, how, how they're, how quickly they're going to process information. It's, um, you know, the, the whole, the intelligence part of it is huge. I mean, you know, Brava is, su- she's, she's so off, so high on the, the intelligence side of it. Uh, it kind of makes powder kind of pale in comparison with the intelligence, but then powder, sure. all like she's go, 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 go. And she'll actually put in more effort than Brava sometimes. Uh-huh. And I think it's just, so there, it's not that one is better than the other. It's just, they're just different, you know? So you just have yeah. to approach them differently. So. Well, I know, I know in high school, I was one of those kids who was, uh, not to toot my own horn, but I was pretty smart. <laughs> and yeah, it meant yeah. that when I got to college, I had to do a lot of work to learn how to study and to learn how to actually <laughs> dig in. Yeah, me too. And, me too. It's like, yeah. you know, I, you know, could you know, snooze through high school and come out, mm-hmm. you know, it, with a, you know, like a, just under a four, I had a three, nine, seven, I think if, if I remember. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And then I go to college, like, whoa, I have to study. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's kind of funny, but there's, there's huge parallels to the dogs. It's just, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I love what you're saying about, I like, I love one of my favorite things in this line of work and in the scent world is how we can use hide placement to kind of like shape the way that our dogs learn and the way that they think and, you know, I feel a bit, I feel like it's kind of, you know, building reinforcement histories for all of these different um, puzzles and problem solving. And in this, in this particular field in conservation detection dogs, I often feel like training is a dirty word. Um, like no one in this field wants to call themselves a trainer. No one wants to call uh, themselves a handler. Okay, um, okay. There's, there's all sorts of very interesting cultural stuff in this field. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to say I fully understand it all the time either, especially because I do come from come at it from a training background. And, and, and I'm not saying that's universal. There are several other handlers um, and trainers and really, really excellent people that I, I really look up to who are, who are also very much so potentially on the former competitive nose work side of things or whatever, and they're not as uncomfortable with the idea of training. And I wonder if some of it comes from this idea that what you and I are describing as we're talking about our training setups and, you know, maybe we can think of it as practice um, is pretty different from what a lot of people may think of when they think of like an obedience. Class. Yes. Yes. Um, and maybe I guess if your definition of training is that you're standing on the leash and you've got a clicker in one hand and your, your treats in the other. And you know, the dog has very, very few choices and you're just like absolutely like fully operant through yes. the situation. It's prescriptive, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Which hasn't been my experience with training anyway. Right. In most cases, but I, I I can see maybe that's where that, uh, I think historically, like if like if you you think about a lot of like kind of old school type of training where it's very um, you know you tell the dog to do something and they di- they do it right versus yeah. kind of letting the dog kind of explore through different options until they figure out the right answer. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, th- I think I think you're right though. And if we if we think about like a, like more of the scenting type of situation, we're not actually the training doesn't come from the human, right? The training comes from the high. And then, you know, our role is in how do we consistently respond to that so that we can kind of, we're just providing consistency. We're, we're in the reward, providing consistency, even in the setups and how we respond to things, you know, how we respond to mistakes, how we respond to successes, Mm -hmm. all of those things. That's really just more, more our role, but the hide itself actually does all the, all the really cool training. Um, and yeah. I think a lot of times though, people who come into, even from the sports side, they just kind of assume that the dog knows how to search. And, um, and, and it was surprising is that, well, no, they know how to sniff. They understand how to process odor, but they don't naturally, they don't all naturally know how to search. So some yeah. are going to be more genetically predisposed and some are not. And it, it, it does something you have to, and then the, the dog actually has to learn the scent theory for their target odor. Cause all the target odors are going to act differently. Your target yeah. odor for your bats is going to act very differently than the target odor I worked with, which is essential oils. You know, what I'm working <laughs> with are very volatile, right? It's, it's got a very high vapor pressure that, um, that odor just goes whoosh, right into the air and yeah. it's, it's gonna, it, it's really just going to work differently. So you know, that's where the high, you know, the dog learns the scent theory, the dog learns, you know, and, and so you really are training when you, when you set those highs, you really just have to, and you're sculpting that behavior, you know? Yeah. 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 Very cool. Yeah. Um, have you seen, this is one of my, one of my, my, my last questions, cause we've already kind of made it through all the questions I had. Now I'm just having fun. Have you seen any correlation between the dogs who naturally seem to understand that like seeking and sourcing versus the, the it, like, I know I've definitely worked with my friend, Rachel is training a new dog um, who she's hoping to be a conservation detection dog. And she was like, Oh my gosh, it's taking us like a couple weeks to just get Suki to be like good at finding a couple hidden cookies around like a, a room. Yeah. Versus other dogs. I mean like Barley bef- well before I ever got him started on nose work was already like an absolute master dumpster diver yes. and would find any food anywhere in the house. <laughs> I think I live um, with those. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. What a nightmare. Yeah. He's uh, like, I, I, I sw- under the fridge. <laughs> yeah. I swear to God, Barley, Barley is like part raccoon. Yeah. Um, but um, have you seen any correlation between the dogs who really naturally kind of understand how odor works or, or is that something that most dogs kind of pick up on later? As well. I, I think the hunting is genetic, right? Yeah. Um, and it, and, it, and the, because I think it's also natural problem solving. So it's, it kind of makes me reflect a little bit on when I picked prize out of the litter, right? Mm-hmm. So I was actually looking for a puppy who could have her, what she desired and to think about her physical environment and how to kind of work that. And it was really, really cool. When I went to go pick her, I, there was, there were a couple puppies I was looking at and there was, she was a little lime green color puppy. And, um, uh, Robin was, uh, you know, she, she was, she was walking over the, the rolled up, rolled up chain link. So it was kind of like puppy rubble. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I wanted to see how the puppies reacted to the physical environment to, and how they process that information to problem solve to get to where they want to go. And what I loved about Prize when she was this little tiny puppy is she kind of looked at this overhang. She's like, where another puppy w- went underneath it and just cried. She's like, well, no, I just can't get to her from there. I'm going to just go around the other way. Yeah. That sort of problem solving was just amazing. When I saw that, I was like, oh, that's the puppy I want. So I picked that puppy. Now, when I brought her home, I did a few a few food searches. And what I noticed was, is that problem solving really kind of showed itself. And she would, she'd have the odor of the, I've had like a little squeeze cheese or whatever. And she was really trying to work around and through and that whole, you know, working the whole environment to try to get to it. That I think, I mean, yeah, you can teach some of that. You, actually, you can, you can teach it, but the, the fact that she had that built-in resilience and that built-in yeah. problem solving, um, it was fascinating for me to see because she, she just really kind of understood some of the core, like she understood how to problem solve, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know one of the first memories I have of baby Niffler, I went and visited the litter when they were five or six weeks old. Um, So it was well before I had any idea which puppy um, I was, I I didn't even know if I was going to take a puppy from this litter at that point. Um, And I was hanging out with them and uh, um, the breeder had a a bowl of raw marrow bones um, thawing on the kitchen table. And it was kind (laughs) of a, like a bar height kitchen table. Yeah. The puppies are all kind of running around and wrestling or whatever. And I watched Niffler catch the odor and lift his nose and then follow it over and he got himself right under the table and then sat you know and he like jumped around and kind of tried to figure out how to get up there for a little bit (laughs) 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 and then he did the thing that you know now in retrospect i'm like oh yeah well that makes sense now and then he just sat under it and screamed And that is that is so Niffler. Like he will do his darndest. He will try so hard, and he doesn't really ever give up. He just then starts demanding assistance. Right, Um, right, 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 right. And I like that about him. I like that he's he's creative. He tried manding at the at the like just manding at the table. He was like, maybe if I sit, the table will produce food. That's what my breeder does. (laughs) You know, he tried climbing. He tried a couple other things, and then he just screamed. It was just pure frustration. It was like, it's there. I can't physically get to it. Yeah. 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 You do see some of those things come out in the puppies and just, you know, you just see some just keep trying, keep working. And And there's always been a part of me that I hope, I I really hope one day I get to try this experiment. Um, And it's not going to happen right now because I live in a van. So two dogs is like absolutely the max. (laughs) But (laughs) yes. I would, I would love to like have been able to take home two puppies from that litter, like the right. one that I, I peg as like, yeah, Niffler, that's the one I want. And then like, yeah. oh, you've got this other one that's a little shy, but it's got the same genetics. And then kind of like see, I, I'm just, I'm so curious yeah. how much of it is the nature and nurture and like how much of it actually is yeah. movable because I feel like, uh, you know, both in your line of work with the, yeah. with the sport dogs and my line of work with the working dogs, you know, even the people who, who, the people who have really high success with getting puppies up to the point of, you know, summits or working dogs or whatever, we're only working with the puppies that we pick. And I wonder, I'm just so curious about the predictive value of these things and like how far some of the other puppies may make it if they were with a handler who was that experienced. I don't know. 
I don't know because if I reflect back on uh, really my first uh, nose work dog, Judd, right? Uh-huh. So Judd was, I don't know his genetics. He was, he came out of a high kill gassing shelter in North Carolina. I did the embark like way back when they first started and they, he, they came out half Labrador, quarter Bouvier, quarter unknown. I don't believe the Bouvier. There's absolutely no Bouvier in that dog. I, I may have believed Coonhound, right? Sure. Sure. What, what I, you know, he really struggled a lot with a lot of like obedience and agility and everything. Cause he just was very uh, sensitive, you know, very environmentally sensitive, very pressure sensitive. But when I started to do anything with his nose, he just lit up, right? He, he yeah. loved, we did a little tracking. He loved that. And then we came to nose work. So he had a lot of desire, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is that he had desire to use his nose. And we made a whole lot of mistakes because he was my learning dog, right? I learned a lot yep. of him. We made a ton of mistakes, but he ended up, you know, before he passed from cancer, he ended up earning three summit titles. Yeah. So would could he have been better if I knew what I was doing? Probably. But I think, I think there was a genetic component there. Totally. But I think you know, we also can't underestimate the training side of it. So yeah, I think you could take a dog with incredible genetics and incredible tendencies, and you can put them into an environment where they're not trained. They're not like sculpted with the right hide placement where they, that if the trainer gets the dog out of, out of balance, right. With those three things, you're going to have a, a hot mess. So yeah. I think it, there's a huge ass. So I think a part of it is, yeah, yeah. Genetics is, is a big deal. But I think we also have to remember that the training is probably a bigger deal. So yeah, yeah, and I, I think again, I'm, I'm especially curious about some of Niffler's siblings who, when we, because I also got to help with some of the puppy assessments at yeah. seven weeks. Oh, okay, cool, very cool. Um, yeah, it was really great. Um, I was this is the plus side of I was only a couple of hours away from his breeder. I mean, I guess it was five, but in Montana, that's that's next door. Yeah, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> But he had a couple siblings who scored higher than him on some of the things I was looking for. And, you know, I'm just, I'm so curious about how successful those puppies may have been or may, and they're all in agility or dock diving homes for the most part at this point. So they're all, they're all starting off on careers of their own. But um, yeah, I'm just so, so curious of just like, would they work differently from him? I'm sure they would. How so? you know, would they, would they succeed as early as he had, or did I actually do that good of a job of picking the right puppy? Like, is it me and my training or did I pick the right puppy? (laughs) I guess is the question I want. I wish I could answer. I know. And I don't think we have, I don't think we have like an answer to that, but I, I, all I can say is that I've seen sometimes when when you work with handlers and you're like, yeah, this handler is a phenomenal trainer. Cause you know, we're, you know, when I'm working with people, they're, they're, I'm not doing all, I'm not setting all their hides. Right. So I, I teach online. So, you know, that some people you can tell are just really good trainers and some people are are not. And sometimes, you know, but when you get a good dog and you match it with a good trainer, the the result is pretty magical, you know, it's, um, but yeah, you can also have a really good trainer and have a dog that may struggle a little bit and they're not going to get as far. It's just, Mm -hmm. I think the genetic is a huge part of it. Um, it's, but it's definitely not the whole, the whole equation. Cause I think you can, you can yeah. take a great dog and if you don't have a very good trainer, they're, they're just, they're not going to be successful. I mean, no matter what. Yeah. Well, and I know one of the things I've seen, especially in the working dog world is, um, 
dogs that are so 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 driven yeah and so 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 obsessed with their reinforcers that it is really easy to build a lot of frustration and a lot yes. of other problems that kind of come from being too far yes. on the other end of the uh the equation i'm nodding my head in huge agreement uh, yeah you know i you know even with uh, my girls are very high on the drive side and you know i think a lot of times you, you look at these dogs and they they look easy because they're like oh well they they, they understand how to do this but all that arousal all that drive comes with a lot of challenge so you know, and just trying to manage that and then trying to try, because the, again, it, they can get frustrated. Like, and I've also seen that some dogs are more likely to get frustrated than others. So mm -hmm. if you have that frustration aspect to it, it can, it can really, yeah. Brava sometimes gets frustrated. It's like, she's like, well, there's odor up there. So, so her, her big challenge that I'm, I need to work with is when odor is uh, lofting due to like mm -hmm. thermal influence uh, uh, far away and that is carrying, and then she sees a visual object above her. Oh, uh -huh. I get alerts on the visual object, and she's incorrect, so she gets frustrated. So, as a trainer, I have to try to figure out how to get her to connect the dots and understand hey, it's not that thing dangling from the ceiling, right? It's, yeah. you know, 100, 100 feet away. Uh, and how to work that scent code. And I think when you have, sometimes you, you're coupling that drive with that low tolerance for frustration, you know, you're, you're going to, and that's a whole, that's a sourcing challenge, right? Totally. Yeah. 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 It is yeah really, and a lot yeah. of, yeah. like, I know I've seen it with some dogs who a lot of it comes out in toy skills, which is like a shade white cell question. Oh, um, yeah. I, I've, seen, yeah. I've seen a couple of mouths who get more and more frantic as the reward continues. You know, you're playing ball with them yep. and they know that every throw means that you're actually closer to having that ball removed from them. <laughs> yeah. And that's really hard for them. I've seen, I've seen that. Um, and I know in our line of work, one of the things that is really, it's a big no, no, you, I mean, you absolutely can't have in most cases an active alert and any dog right. who is, you know, I mean, yeah, you I, destroy the yeah. Yeah, so any dog whose frustration response is going to be any sort of aggressing towards yeah um, towards the hide. You know, I know Fancy Dog Sports uh, has a class called Box Smashers Anonymous. Like yeah. I've definitely yeah. seen, seen some working dogs who are on that that side of things, yeah. and um, obviously it's not quite as high consequence as if you had an explosives dog doing that sort of thing. That could be bad. But yeah, that would be really, really bad. <laughs> that, could, that, could, um, that could be a negative. Yeah, um, that would be that would potentially be career ending um, immediately. Uh, yeah, yeah, like like uh, that, that that's what you fail once, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't get a chance to learn from that one. No. Um, at least for us, we do have a chance yeah. to learn from it. But it is, you know, when we're working around highly sensitive species, it's still a big no-no. So oh. anyway, and that's a whole other question oh, um, and something yes. I love thinking about as far as like yes. finding that balance between like, I do want a high drive dog. I absolutely want a dog who's but got the motivation to do this work. that when they find it. Exactly. And I don't yeah. want a dog who's, I don't want, and, and I, I know like reasonable people can disagree about this, uh, but I don't want drive at all costs. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So. 
And I think on that note, um, we need to wrap up. We try to keep it at around that hour. Yeah. And we're at 59 minutes. I can like keep talking on that one. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah, We'll have to, let's put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. We'll schedule something for 2022. (laughs) That sounds great. That sounds great. That sounds great. I would love that. Um, Well, Stacey, where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more from you, hiring you for, for your mentorship, all of those great things? Oh, well, thank you for that, um, for that opportunity to, to kind of put that out there. Uh, I, I have a website. It's uh, Sensibilities Knows Work, but it's www.sensibilitiesnw.com. Mm-hmm. So it's S-C-E-N-T-S, abilitiesnw.com. And I, I keep that pretty, pretty up to date. It's got uh, my online classes, my webinars, that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, that would, that would be, that would be awesome. But no, this has been so much fun. And yeah. like, I could just keep talking about this stuff. It's just, I know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cause like, like on your last part, oh, yeah, I can't, I can't stop. I can't stop. So I do notice that there are some dogs that are more likely to have an aggressive alert versus others. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think it has, it's a one-to-one with drive. So that'll just put that out there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like I've seen a lot of breed tendencies that correlate with it. Yeah. Um, that make a lot of sense. And also sometimes for, yeah. Yeah. I think it's individual. Yeah. Power has that tendency. Brava does not. They're half sisters. So yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. So on that note, right. (laughs) Cliffhanger. Um, (laughs) okay. Well, Yep. Thank you again, Stacy. Um, this was this was fun as always, and um, we'll talk to you next time. It's been a blast. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, and join our Patreon over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.